Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Listeners of the Worldly, it is the end of the year and we are doing our annual recap. We're not just talking about what happened this year, though we will talk about those things. We're going to talk about the things, the events in U.S. foreign policy that were most important uh, in terms of the country's relationship with the world or long-term consequences. And then we're going to look ahead for 2020 uh, to talk about the things that might be super important then. And we'll caveat by saying, obviously, the 2020 election is the most important thing for U.S. foreign policy in 2020. So we're not going to talk about that because you all know that. Anyway, I'm here, as always, with Jen Williams and Alex Ward for our exciting wrap-up. Woo, hi. Let's do it. Happy New Year. I mean, you know, it's the Ish. 19th, Alex, so it's not exactly— Well, close. All right. Happy New-ish, almost He's year. He's on vacation, so— That's uh, true. Whatever. So am I. It's fine. All right, so let's let's go. We all each planned out a thing that we wanted to talk about. Uh, Alex, why don't we start with your thing from 2019 that you thought was most important for? Again, we're talking U.S. foreign policy, not everything in the world because that's too broad and too much to cover. Just in terms of the United States's approach to the rest of the world. Yeah. So uh, only 23 days into 2019, we had Juan Guaido, who's a, at the time an unknown Assembly member uh, in Venezuela, to become the interim president backed by the U.S. and eventually, you know, 50, 60-something countries. And this was part of a Trump administration plan to root out Nicolas Maduro, who has been a longtime dictator and has ruined that country in so many ways. There's a health crisis, an economic crisis, a humanitarian crisis of all kinds. So the Trump administration backed Guaido to be interim president to help him get Maduro out, and then Guaido would try to do uh, – try to set up elections and free and fair elections to see Venezuela to, towards a better future. Uh, this was a pretty big gambit by the yeah, Trump administration. Yeah, this was a really big deal. Massive gambit. And, and At one the, point, we thought we might actually invade Venezuela, I this, believe, in support of Guaido. Yeah, this was a concern. And at the time, and I've I'm, I'm been honest about this and I'll say it again, I thought it was one of the Trump administration's best moves because not only did they back Guaido, they didn't have to put too much into it, and they had like 50, 60 countries behind them, that this was an international movement that they had cobbled together. Uh, obviously, Maduro's still in power. Guaido is is actually struggling to gain any foothold. So it has soured over the 2019, but at the time, it seemed like a pretty uh, interesting move and, and, frankly, the biggest gambit uh, of the start of the year. Actually, Alex has a really awesome one-on-one -on -one interview he did with Juan Guaido just recently on the site at Vox.com. We'll link to it in the show notes. You should definitely check it out where he talks uh, at length about, you know, a year into this basically or. Yeah, it was like it's almost a year end interview. Like, how, how's it going, man? And, yeah. <laughs> and he, not well, I assume is the answer. The answer is not well at all. Yeah, uh, but, yeah. But look, you know, you make a case for this being something that was thought to have been important. But, but was it actually, right? Like it, it failed. The U.S. didn't really do much other than put more sanctions on Venezuela. And I don't even know if they, they were more punishing than sanctions that we had already applied. 
Or I, I genuinely yeah, they, don't know. They, they were more. They were more targeted. They went after a bunch of Maduro's like henchmen, uh, even his wife, if I recall. Um, and so henchwife, henchwife. Uh, I believe that's the technical term. All right, I'll allow it. <laughs> Just made that up. <laughs> yes, we all know. <laughs> <laughs> and so, <laughs> everyone listening knew. <laughs> and uh, and so. Uh, of course, there were concerns that this was hurting the everyday Venezuelan at the expense, you know, to pursue this project. But um, this was sort of – this was a move and this was part of a broader scheme, I should say, uh, was seemingly also built by uh, Mike Pence, the vice president, and, and then National Security Advisor John Bolton to push out f- left-leaning dictators, uh, Nicaragua – and in Venezuela, and I'm forgetting the other one at the moment. Um, oh, Cuba, of yeah. course. <laughs> Cuba. I was gonna let you get there. <laughs> yeah, Cuba. Um, and and so that this is sort of this uh, the troika of tyranny is what Bolton yeah. called it. Oh yeah, I remember that. Just yeah. to be honest, it's a pretty great. It's, it's a pretty, pretty great, great phrase. phrase. Yeah. So Venezuela was by far the biggest push that the Trump administration has made in uprooting this troika of tyranny. But what's the significance of the failure here, though? Right? Like it, it seems to me that this was in contrast to a lot of Trump's other foreign policy, really more reflective of the Republican establishment wing of his party with Bolton and Pence being the people largely in charge of it and its ambition of intervening in foreign affairs to topple an unfriendly dictator. Well, there was also that report, though, that like Trump was complaining, and I don't remember where it's from and have to look it up, but where Trump was complaining to someone, to the military, basically saying, you guys want to invade all of the countries except the ones I want to invade. He said that to Lindsey Graham, Yeah, I thought, and he was yeah. talking about Venezuela, like in the sense that he was like, wanting to do more kind of aggressive things for Venezuela. And they're like, yeah, you can't do that. Like, well, it's a bad idea. I think even in 2017, Trump was like, we might have a military solution for Venezuela. Yeah. People were like, wait a minute, what's going on? And there are reports um, that uh, that I've even talked about that Trump is considering the oil when he's thinking about a military solution for Venezuela. That actually makes a lot of sense. But uh, but, but then yeah. you the, – like, that's the significance of it. They are right, right? Like it's – there was this push – from, quote-unquote, more establishment parts of the administration to orchestrate some kind of overall pressure campaign on one of its traditional objectives, left-wing dictators in Latin America. And then Trump tried to take it in an extremely Trumpy direction, and they didn't let him, or he was persuaded not to. It's not clear what happened. And then it failed. The, The overall policy failed, as these things often do. You can see similar failures in the attempt to topple the regime in Iran, which has been a longstanding Republican establishment move. And now Trump's really mad, right? He's really frustrated that they locked him in to this Venezuela policy, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, and even now he's considering saying like, oh, Guaido may not be the man for this job. He, they might be considering other options. Uh, there was even reports that Trump like stopped caring about Venezuela at all. And so the reason I think all this matters is, one, it was by far, I think, in my mind, one of the most ambitious projects of the Trump administration's foreign policy, period, obviously started earlier this year. Maybe things will change down the line, but for right now, it doesn't look too good. But it was a it was a sea change from the Obama administration, and the Obama administration had its own issues in Latin America. But one thing that the Obama administration was very clear about was, like, we're not going to try to interfere that much in this hemisphere. Like, that, you know, I think even Kerry, I have to look it up, but said along the lines of the heir of the Monroe Doctrine is over. And now here's Trump and his administration being like, uh, three of your country, three countries, you're out of here, and we're going to change everything. And Venezuela is the most uh, dramatic example. I would also actually add in a different way, I think it was also important because it also started to expose some of the interesting kind of rifts or tensions on the left. Yeah. So we saw a lot of, you know, super progressive kind of lefty um, foreign policy, you know, people and officials and members of Congress and even, you know, 
some people running for president kind of weigh in on this. Um, there was that kind of Ilhan Omar moment where she was grilling Elliot Abrams in front of Congress right. um, and kind of got into this like this, you know, really argumentative back and forth. Um, but there were also like some really strange things that people were saying that this was a right wing coup that the U.S. was backing uh, in Venezuela. And it was like, well, Juan Guaido is like literally a socialist. Like he's was endorsed like this move was endorsed by like the International Socialist Organization. So it was really weird. You started to see, you know, this kind of hardcore anti-intervention left really kind of raise its head, which we've seen, you know, further in, uh, in Bolivia and, you know, more recent events. But so I think that's also significant as well. Yeah, I hung out with Code Pink and people like that that took over the Venezuelan embassy here in D.C. to protect it from Maduro, who right. would, would told me, like, we're not really Maduro fans, although some of them definitely were, but we just don't want American intervention. And, and the last point on this is that now you're seeing even 2020 Democratic candidates Starting to kind of back off uh, on Latin America, Castro, uh, you know, Julian Castro is saying that the U.S. needs to show a lot more respect for the region. Joe Biden has put out a plan for for the for the region about you know how to how to deal with it. So like, and it's and it's nowhere near as aggressive as, as it has been in the past from Democrats and Republicans. And so, I think it's they're trying to move away from Trump's very handy uh, heavy handed approach. So we are going to move away from this topic and on to our our second event of the year. Uh, Jen, you uh, you picked out this one, and, yeah, and uh, you're not going to be surprised by what it is. Yeah, I was about to say, longtime listeners are probably not going to be surprised that I pick something to do with da, 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 terrorism. So I thought it was like Mauritius politics. Yeah, uh, so I went with, uh, obviously, uh, terrorism-related. So the nighttime raid to kill Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, the head of ISIS. So this happened the end of October. Um, I picked this for a few reasons. We could talk about. Uh, I don't necessarily think this is the biggest, most consequential, you know, event necessarily, but I think it was a big foreign policy moment um, for a lot of reasons. One, it was just a really successful counterterrorism raid by the Trump administration. We have not necessarily seen, as we just talked about, super successful foreign policy uh, gambits by the Trump administration. They have made big, bold ones, right? North Korea meetings, stuff like that. But not everything has gone super swimmingly, uh, just like we said with Venezuela. And this was pretty much by all accounts really, really well done. Uh, it was incredibly well coordinated. They had to, the Trump administration had to coordinate with numerous countries, with Russia, with Turkey, you know, to let them know, hey, we need to use your airspace. We're going to be flying through to do this raid. Please don't fire on us. Um, and, you know, given the fact that there are all these tensions with Turkey and with Russia and the U.S., that I think that was actually pretty interesting that we were still able to pull this off. Um, you know, we, they kept it, you know, close to the vest. They kept it secret until it happened. Uh, you may remember previously with the bin Laden raid, uh, that was actually the story was kind of broken by some guy who was sitting on his roof nearby and it was like live tweeting. It was like, there are these helicopters landing. So they managed to keep it pretty secret until it happened. You know, it was successful. They got Baghdadi. Uh, they also got this pretty, as far as we can tell, uh, we haven't seen publicly released documents or, or you know, the, the products that they, they got, but, you know, they said that they got a lot of documentary evidence and, and all kinds of, you know, resources from the compound that should theoretically help in counterterrorism operations going forward. So for that reason, I think that's great. And also, you know, he was the figurehead of ISIS and getting him, uh, I think, is positive. You know, ISIS is already on the run and has been, you know, defeated in, in many ways. But I think 
taking him out was really important, and it was a really important symbolic move. So that's my argument. And now tell me while I'm wrong, Zach Beecham. <laughs> Jen saw my face while you're taping this. Uh, <laughs> like, uh, I think there are two levels in which uh, the Baghdadi raid, which was a huge deal at the time, right, uh, felt kind of overstated to me in retrospect. Like, the first one is politically. Uh, it was supposed to be the Trump administration answer to the bin Laden raid. Right. And I, it's kind of gross. I think it's actually really gross to talk about deaths of human beings in these kind of really crass political terms. But that's the way it was being framed by a lot of people in American politics. It, you know, this is supposed to show Trump is serious and tough on national security and has real accomplishments. But it turns out that in the American public's imaginary, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi doesn't have the same resonance as right. the guy who did the 9-11 attacks. And the, the political effect appeared to be non-existent or at least very muted. Uh, and the, the second thing is substantively, uh, is ISIS the kind of organization that's likely to be harmed by decapitation, that is to say the killing of its leader. And my read of the terrorism literature on this is no. ISIS is fairly bureaucratized. It has, uh, you know, a, a lot of different organizational structures, a succession ladder, uh, and, and generally speaking is not likely to be severely disrupted by the Baghdadi raid. And you've seen some, uh, some significant ISIS terrorist resurgence in the past few months so that, that to me is evidence that it's it, – while it was flashy and well-executed on a technical level, it may not have accomplished much as a U.S. foreign policy move. Yeah. I mean so I, I obviously disagree um, pretty substantively on that just in terms of – you know, and, and I also know that the literature on decapitation um, it, it obviously doesn't suggest that necessarily this would be um, – you know, the thing that kills ISIS, uh, except that we saw they also took out a couple other people who were supposed to be on that succession ladder. Yeah. Um, so like the next, like the number two, the number three, which were pretty promptly taken out shortly after. Now, whether I, I think they said it was not as a result of the, the intel they got from the Baghdadi raid that they also had this going on. But still, um, taking out the top three people is pretty effective. And then, you know, <laughs> they named the successor to Baghdadi. And literally nobody knows who it is. Everyone's like, wait, who? Who's that guy? And like, it's... I he may not even exist, actually, which right. is the funny part of it. Yeah. Well, it's a guy <laughs> named, named Al Qureshi. And, you know, they... That's also a name that they used often to <laughs> describe his... Baghdadi as because, you know, it signifies that you descended from, you know, Prophet Muhammad's family and part of the Quraysh kind of tribe line. So it's really important. But... In terms of, like, leadership of the organization, in terms of being, like, the figurehead who, you know, is is leading this powerful, you know, organization or whatever, having, like, some random guy that even the group's own fighters don't even know who this is, like, that's, I think, actually pretty important that, like, there's just – we took out the guy they knew, the guy who called them to arms, and now there is some person they have not heard of. We haven't really seen the guy's face, like – and the credibility that that person has to lead an organization – and it's harder, you know, it's one thing to lead an organization when you're powerful and you have this big caliphate and you've taken over like this massive swath of land, like bigger than Britain. It's another thing when you're on the run and you're, a, you know, being hunted down in every corner to get people to join. And so you need like a figurehead, you need a strong leader and you need to have someone who is giving that call to arms that is that is sexy, that is attractive to someone to join this organization. And if you have just some rando and I'm like, literally, who are you? Uh, I think that that is actually important in terms of recruiting. And I know you don't like to talk about political terms on stuff like this, Zach, but I, I do think it is important here because Trump was looking to rack up some foreign policy wins 
and he was devoid of them, uh, right? Venezuela was looking good, and then it wasn't. Um, trade deals were looking good, and then it wasn't, although now we might be getting um, the USMCA. You know, the China trade deal, which we'll talk about later, was, has been sputtering. Like, kind of go down the list on a lot of his major pushes, and other than NATO countries are spending more, not necessarily because of Trump, but, like, it's aligns with what he wants— he needed something else. And I don't doubt for a second. I mean, I think any president, regardless, if they had the chance to get Baghdadi, would, would go for it. But I don't doubt that at least 1% or 2% or more in Trump's mind was, man, I really need to, when I go on the campaign trail next year, I need to be able to say, like, I got Baghdadi, I got a trade deal, you know, because uh, he was looking for all these kinds of other things I didn't get. I will say one thing, he probably, if he's going to use this on the campaign trail, needs to practice saying the name a few more times. Because when he made the announcement, he called him, like, you could tell he was reading very carefully off the teleprompter. And he was like, a Boo, Bakar, Al Bagadi, uh, and you're like, oh, that was I mean, bad. close yeah. enough, but you tried, and you know, a for effort, but you kind of missed it. So I'm just saying, if you want to get a little bit more political points out of this, maybe practice saying, yeah, look, that's I, all I'm saying. I would say there's been there if there wasn't a polling bump, then it's unlikely to be one in the future. And to Jen's point. I think the continued efficacy of ISIS, like, on the ground as an operation and the warnings you see from experts now about the group's continued resurgence in its once strongholds, not as a territory holder, but as a organization that can conduct terrorist strikes with with growing boldness and levels of organization, suggests to me that while this Qureshi guy may, may not be real and may even be made up, it, the organization did not suffer— too much. Again, that'll be hard to prove one way or another and maybe will never be resolved. But yeah. sort of my gut, my my gut instinct, but I see the case that Jen is making. I yeah. think but it's also a at the end of the one. day, like, screw that guy. I'm glad he's dead. The most important thing really is we got a hero dog out of it. And that's, yes! that's right. Yeah. That's right. Conan gender the gender still, fluid dog. Yeah. Gender <laughs> still TBD. But I thought uh, they confirmed it was a boy dog. Uh, no. I mean, maybe. I thought that was confirmed. No, I thought it was the other way around. It was confirmed to be a lady dog. I now, mean, you, Conan. Well, you know what? Forever doesn't matter. You're a good dog. Yeah, you're just a good dog. Yeah, gen yeah. gender is is a construct. Um, <laughs> so, so look, Zach, how about you? Yeah, yeah, I get to I get to have one. Um, so mine is uh, one that we knew was coming, but nonetheless, once initiated, was significant, which is the Trump administration's withdrawal from the Paris Climate Agreement. Yes. Under the terms of the agreement, even though he announced this in 2017, right? It was 2017? Yeah. Yeah, yeah it, it was like right after yeah. he was— Yeah, it was like one of his yeah. first things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Even though he announced in 2017 that he would be pulling out of the agreement, formally, the U.S. could not start the process until November— of 2019. And if I have the dates right in my head, the process will complete the day after the 2020 election. Mm. Uh, and then the U.S. will be out of it possibly just for a matter of months if a Democrat wins. But if Trump wins, then the U.S. will be out of it for quite some time. Uh, I think the case for this, this significance, it should be pretty clear to, to everybody listening, right? The United States, the world's most important economy and a uh, technological hub that's developing clean energy has pulled itself out of the world's most important climate initiative, which, while non-binding, nonetheless knit together a bunch of countries into a coalition to stave off a collective disaster for the planet. Yeah. And the Trump administration <laughs> has, big. Yeah, has just withdrawn from an agreement designed to fight the most important problem of the 21st century. And, and now we're in the process of leaving it. Yeah, I mean, it seems bad, but it was— oh, it's what he planned to do. It's what he said he would do. And by golly, he went through it. And I'm sure, by the way, he's going to continue to talk about it in, in positive terms, <laughs> politically speaking. And, and what always bothers me about the, I mean, yes, the big stakes. But what bothers me is when he keeps talking about, like, I want the cleanest water, the cleanest air. We need crystal clear. 
And it's just like, but you're pulling out of Paris, man. Like, what, how is this going to help? What are your, what is this plan that you have in your head? And so he almost fancies himself an environmentalist. I know, but he's also like rolling back regulations domestically. Oh, that, for like, sure. Even, you know, regardless of, you know. Also, can we just stop for a second and just remind everyone? Because I feel like this is something that Trump is still confused about or is just lying about or whatever. I'm not going to try to figure out what's going on in that man's brain. But the Paris Climate Accord was non-binding. Which means, like, his whole argument was that it puts restrictions on us that are unfair, that puts us economically at a disadvantage, right? And that's, like, a that's a reasonable argument. You know, obviously, if you think that climate change is a bigger deal uh, than, you know, business and money and the domestic economy, obviously, then you don't buy that argument. But but that's wrong. Like, in this case, that it's not actually real because it was non-binding. We didn't have to do anything. Right. It's it's almost climate politics as identity politics. It's, right. It's a way of saying, like, screw you, you hippies. And, like, you care about this thing. Well, we don't. And American business, we're back. We're in uh, – we're in oil's corner here. And it's a way of signaling that to the rest of the world, which also sends the reverse signal and the really damaging one, which is that other countries don't need – to put the same restrictions on their own domestic industries because the U.S. isn't going to do it. Why should China do it? Why should India do it? And those are we. The EU is pretty much on board with doing climate stuff for the most part. So China and India are the two most important countries to try to keep in line, given the size of their populations and economies. And the U.S. stepping back gives the leaders of those countries incentives to step back, even if the U.S. move is purely symbolic. Yeah, it's a total own goal on our own soft power. Right? There's like no reason for us to just be antagonists. Uh, of a non-binding agreement that helps climate, uh, especially if that's even what Trump's stated goal is, to have crystal clear water and air. I, I'm baffled by this move, and yet I, I'm persuaded by your analysis, Zach, that it is a kind of just like a trigger-the-libs thing to yeah, do. Yeah, identity politics. I think that's really smart, especially when you actually consider the very real fact that no matter what Trump says about climate change being a hoax and being fake and making fun of it, he is simultaneously taking steps to try to build a seawall for the express stated reason of climate change to protect one of his golf courses overseas. So he may say for political reasons and wanting to do the whole own the libs and, you know, I don't believe in climate change and screw it and pull out of the climate accord. But he's still taking steps to mitigate the potential effects of climate change for his own personal property. So I think that's pretty telling in and of itself. That's just me. So we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the things that Trump may or may not do in 2020 and the broader U.S. government might do that could end up being the issues of the new year. Welcome back, everybody, to Worldly's year-end extravaganza. We just finished recapping the things that you needed to know about from 2019 that were really important to U.S. foreign policy, shaping America's role in the world and had real significance. At least some of us argued in certain circumstances had real significance. Uh, and now we're going to do the same thing, but in a sort of more speculative, forecasty way. We want to talk about what we see as the most important emerging issues in U.S. foreign policy in 2020. Uh, and so we're going to go in the same order. Alex, I want to start with your pick for what you're what you're watching in American foreign policy as the year starts. So no surprise, I'm going to pick North Korea. Uh, <laughs> Are you? <laughs> yes. I wasn't aware you were interested in that country, I, I, Alex Ward. I, is it different from the South Korea? I believe it is. Well, we're, we're really all playing to type today. <laughs> it really is bad. Uh, <laughs> you know, um, go with what works. <laughs> eh, fair enough. And it ain't broke. Um, 
So, okay, I almost picked the failed summit between Trump and Kim Jong-un back in February where the era where it looked like we might have some sort of diplomatic moment, some breakthrough, there was at least a, an iota of a chance that that was going to happen. The February summit in uh, in Hanoi, Vietnam, completely destroyed that. And the administration has been f- bumbling toward nothingness really ever since. And Kim in April gave the U.S. a deadline by year's end to say, we need a deal. And if we don't have a deal, we may pursue a new course. So one thing I'll be looking at is... Uh, North Korea, uh, Kim gives a New Year's Day address. It's kind of like their State of the Union. And that's where he announces all the priorities for the year, you know, anything he's going to be doing. And it's at that speech that analysts are worried he's basically going to announce, we're done with diplomacy, we're back to testing uh, long-range missiles, we're back to doing nuclear tests, we're doing everything we weren't doing before because we were in the middle of diplomatic negotiations. And there's even a chance um, something may happen before, you know, December 31st. Yeah, they promised a, a Christmas present, they right? A Christmas or, gift, or they, yeah. Or they've threatened a they Christmas threatened, gift. Threatened a Christmas gift, which uh, some analysts believe will be a satellite launch, and that's provocative. It's not the most provocative. The red line that Trump has sent, set is uh, no nuclear tests or ICBM launches, um, but that could all change next year, which would mean that fire and fury tear we were worried about could come back. Wouldn't a satellite test kind of straddle that line because it's not technically an ICBM, but— well, right, but it's uh, yes and no. I mean, Trump has been we've or North Korea has been testing things this year at yeah, a pretty rapid range clip. Missiles. Short range missiles, and there's a chance that they might even do an escalation ladder, like a medium range missile that goes over Japan or something. I don't know. Uh, but what Trump has been very clear is two things: as long as it's not an ICBM that basically can reach the United States or a nuclear test, have at it, Kim. And so Kim has been kind of testing that limit. So I just want to just kind of clarify, like, why this is so concerning. I mean, obviously beyond, like, the North Korea's nuclear weapons issue. But, I mean, in terms of, like, where we're stuck in the process right now, it doesn't seem like there's any room to give on either side. So we're at a stalemate, and you've written about this a bunch, Alex, where essentially the stalemate is the U.S. says to North Korea, you have to take some very significant steps like dismantling a nuclear facility um, or doing these kind of like big demonstrative things that are, you know, reversible, but would take a long time to reverse, right? Something that's big and serious and proves that you're serious about doing this. Uh, And only once you do that, will we start lifting off some of these sanctions that, you know, you really want us to lift. And the North Korean position is the exact flip of that, which is, you take off these sanctions first, then we'll do something. We want you to prove that you're serious and we're not going to just start dismantling for you not to do anything. And so they're at this impasse. And for me, you know, we're hurtling towards this end of your deadline that that Kim arbitrarily set, you know, for himself and for the country to say, you know, if we don't have even progress toward a deal, I think even if there were movement toward a deal, he might even be okay. Uh, again, I'm not going to try to read into that man's mind. But it feels like we're still stuck at the same position. And to me, it doesn't seem like that's going to change any differently next year. Trump is still going to be president. He still has this brand of personal diplomacy that he thinks if he gets in a room with Kim, they can work it out. But we've seen that if unless you have like the lower level work of diplomacy being done to get towards that deal, that's not going to produce anything. I don't think that's going to change, right? Right. Or, and conversely, you could imagine Trump decides to flip the script and go, okay, fine. Here's some sanctions relief. And then maybe that's North true. Korea gives something. Like, I, I'm not convinced yet. Look, any any sort of traditional foreign policy person has told me, without the groundwork, you're not going to get anywhere. And in my mind, I'm not so persuaded by that. I mean, there's a lot to that argument. But I'm not persuaded because, like, that strategy had not worked yeah, yet. That- 
Well, right. I'd well, argue it actually did in some ways. Okay. But, but in, like if Trump were to decide today I want to do reciprocal measures like him wants, I think we would get further in the process. The thing is the – but Trump is not willing to do that. Also, we're not – fixing the ultimate problem, which is that what Trump wants from North Korea, North Korea can't give. Right. Right? Like Trump wants them to give up their nuclear deterrent entirely. And that's what he claims to – that's what every president has wanted from North Korea, get rid of your nukes. And the North Koreans won't give on that. It's not that they can't. Well, unless, they could. unless we withdraw our, you know, our forces from South Korea. I think they theoretically – Potentially would, but what they call denuclearization and what we call denuclearization are two different things. When they say it, they mean the whole peninsula. They mean U.S. withdraw the nuclear umbrella from South Korea, get rid of your troops. Like no more nuclear threat involved in, you know, the Korean peninsula. And then they're like, okay, well, if there's no threat, then we probably don't need our nukes either. But that's never going to happen either. Yeah, so. I think that Trump can't deliver that, right. actually. I so think Congress side, would stop him. Right. Neither side can really realistically deliver. Also, we'll just, you know, always have nukes. And so, like, so right. then we could, we could hit them with. Uh, oh, I, I agree with you. I, I think this is always – if your goal is to make sure that North Korea gets rid of all its nuclear weapons, you're going to fail. But I think there's an interim deal to be had. I think they're – I think honestly, the Trump Kim relationship and the and and uh, Moon Jae In in South Korea, like this is an alignment that I don't think we'll see for a long time, where they all kind of are interested in, in making moves along these lines, uh, and uh, I think the opportunity is going to be squandered. And I'm, I'm I don't know what Kim is going to do. There are tons of experts that believe Kim is going to be a bit more measured because he doesn't want Fire and Fury of 2017 to come back, but at some point he has his own politics, and there are people coming after him, being like, "Hey, man, you know, you're you're trying it here, but." We want to do more. And um, and so, you know, uh, I, if I were a betting man, I'd say if no deal by December 31st, then – which I think is very, very likely uh, that there won't be a deal, then I think 2020 is looking pretty rocky. That's scary because I remember 2017 and it was, it was actually quite frightening. It was bad. On, on a regular basis because – we thought that we might be going to North Korea – we thought we might be going to war with North Korea at an unpredictable time. And the risks, according to everyone in government that I spoke to, were quite high. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. And that, that, that that's really just a bad way to live uh, and a serious, serious threat to global stability. So, good. I'm glad that, Alex, you're upbeat and cheery about well, what the new year might look like. I'll give one positive note, which is Trump has seemed averse to starting a war with North Korea. In fact, one of his lines is like, Obama almost got us into, into one, which is untrue. But And like, I have stopped it. So maybe his own uh, view on that, on not wanting to start a war with North Korea, will be the saving grace. But uh, that doesn't mean the 2020 would be any less dangerous. I will say, and before we move on, that it is arguably positive on that front that John Bolton is no longer the administration. Because That's true. Dear God, the North Koreans hated him, and dear God, did he hate them back. And there was a, you know, just his existence in the administration was a huge, like, really sticking point for the North Koreans because they were like, we literally hate you. We've hated you forever. We hated you. So the last time we had to deal with you in the Bush administration. So at least he's not there, and he's not super warmongery towards North Korea in the administration anymore. Yeah, so that's good. I was— a I was at Bolton's first major speech after he left, and it was all about why North Korea is bad. Right. And so maybe, uh, in, retros- right. maybe in retrospect, uh, one of the 2019 things, best things Trump did was get rid of John Bolton. Fair <laughs> enough. All right. Jen, you're up. What, what do you got for 2020? So what I'm going to be keeping my eye on in 2020 is Afghanistan. Um, we have seen the Trump administration really make an effort to hold peace talks with the Taliban to try to come to some sort of peace agreement that would enable the U.S. to start withdrawing troops um, pretty significantly from Afghanistan. 
it seemed like they actually got really, really close back in September. There was even talk that Trump was going to bring the Taliban leaders to Camp David for 9-11. Uh, I don't think it was for 9-11, but it was on 9-11 or a few days it was before close. to 9-11. So it was just really awkward. But that fell apart um, for whatever reason. You know, things were not looking great. But just recently, Zalmay Khalilzad, who's the U.S. envoy to the peace talks in Afghanistan, um, announced that they were holding talks again with the Taliban. So we're starting up again in earnest. I think Trump very much wants, I don't think that's a secret, wants to end the U.S. you know military presence in Afghanistan. There's pretty broad support. You know, we had the Afghanistan papers come out that the Washington Post published with an amazing kind of disclosure of all of these FOIA records um, from over the years showing that basically everyone from the generals to experts involved in the government and outside all knew that the Afghanistan war was continuing to be unwinnable. And yet we continue, you know, they continue to often mislead the public and say, well, you know, next six months are critical or we're turning the corner. Uh, yeah. The, 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 uh, the every un- time, every time. <laughs> yeah. The I never roll. ending corner <laughs> that we're just right. We're running in circles. And so, you know, I think there is broad support. If you listen to all the Democratic 2020 candidates, they're all talking about ending endless wars. They're talking about committing to bringing U.S. forces home, you know, in Afghanistan, um, from Afghanistan. And so I think it's definitely possible. I think a lot of people want this war to end. I think it's potentially something that could happen. So I'm watching for next year. I think that would be really positive. It's also really dangerous, right? It's also there's a lot of risk there. Most importantly for the people of Afghanistan and for the women in particular of Afghanistan who have gained significant rights and presence in the government um, since the Taliban left power and whether or not those rights are going to be respected is a really important part of any kind of peace deal. I want to make sure that, you know, personally, I would like to make sure that that is something that any future peace agreement or any agreement that the Taliban then makes with the the Afghan government would, would be secured. And that's a big that's a big sticking point. I wonder if it's under the circumstances that you're describing, Jen, if it's possible to have an exit from Afghanistan that isn't the functional equivalent of the U.S. withdrawal peace agreement from Vietnam, uh, where we left and shortly thereafter, the South Vietnamese government fell because it was propped up entirely by U.S. support. Like, to what extent are we just not paving the way for a a Taliban-led government in Afghanistan or controlled, if not in such an obvious way as a unified Vietnam was, maybe through electoral instruments or through some kind of functional uh, federal arrangements, right? Like, I I, I, don't know. That's a very serious concern. Um, And that's that's the thing. Uh, The question that a lot of people, I think, in America have is, like, by us staying there in perpetuity— like, is that in, in you know, America's best interest? Like, at what point do we call it a day and say, like, look, you know, even though we've been there for coming on 20 years, like, it's still very seriously, like, the Taliban has a lot of control. I mean, they just attacked a U.S. freaking base yeah. uh, just uh, last week. So, so yeah, I mean, you know, I think I personally am very concerned about what is going to happen to Afghanistan and to the people about Afghanistan if the U.S. leaves. I also know a lot of people who served in Afghanistan and who are like, could we just please end this forever war? So I'm sympathetic to both sides. Um, you know, obviously, ideally, we would make an agreement with the Taliban that 
part of that agreement, and that's what the U.S., that's what Khalil Zad is working toward, that part of that agreement says you now have to go negotiate with the Afghan government to, you know, come up with some power-sharing arrangement, um, you know, and the fact that the U.S. would still support the Afghan government, you know, politically and, you know, economically, financially, I think could continue to prop up that government. But it's an absolutely a very serious concern, Zach. Yeah, I mean, I've— I think about this all the time, is that there's just no perfect exit out of Afghanistan. And, right. and uh, you know, we're coming on 20-ish years pretty much um, of the war. And it's, it's I mean, even the most progressive foreign policy people I talk to, they're, of course, going, it's time to get out. Let's get out. I mean, even in, uh, I always bring, I'm bringing this up a lot today, but in the 2020 campaign, you see Democrats fighting between Dewey. Basically, the, the, the highest timeline is, the end of my first term. Right. Right. The earliest seems to be— um, Within my it, first year. Within the first year. And those are interestingly m- led by the two veterans, um, Pete Buttigieg and Tulsi Gabbard. I, I don't—there's just no—I mean, anyone you talk to, though, is very clear that there's just no perfect exit of Afghanistan. There never was going to be. If we leave now or, you know, even within that timeline, people are going to get hurt, period. It's going to be messy. It's going to be ugly. But the flip side is, well, then does that mean we stay forever? And obviously the answer to that is no. And so you, th- it will be unacceptable to leave in multiple instances, but I almost feel like it will be more unacceptable to stay right. in People perpetuity. People are still dying and getting killed, and we're still there. So, yeah. you know, there's also that. Right. They're keeping Maintaining a perpetual war front might not be helping anybody. Right. I, I think it's helpful. We could keep back some— you know, intelligence and even some small special, you know, special forces teams. But you don't need, what, what is it now, around 14,000 troops? At, at this point, like the Afghan army and police force isn't going to do the job. And, you know, we, we gave it our shot at building a democracy and it's that's something there. But uh, it's just we're not going to complete the job unless we stay there in perpetuity. So I want to move on uh, very briefly to the last thing, my pick for uh, 2020. Uh, which is the the nature of the U.S.-China relationship. And I want to talk specifically because that's a little too broad about the trade war, right? There are really intense negotiations ongoing as we record this uh, about what's going to happen. The question is what happens in the new year? Uh, does Trump in an election year escalate his fight with China again, uh, which he could do. I don't know. It's like the thing about the Trump administration approach to China is it came, It seems to keep zigzagging back and forth. It's schizophrenic. But, yeah, China. between Trump deciding that he likes Xi personally in the way that he likes Kim Jong-un and wanting to hang out with him and be friends. Man has and has a strange choice of friends. Yeah, seriously. And sometimes, you know, hanging out with a guy who's putting his Muslim minority in detention camps. And then sometimes it's China is a threat to American national security. They're taking our jobs. We got to fight them on the economic front, and we're going to put massive, massive, massive tariffs on Chinese imports that are destabilizing the global economy and could upset the the really delicate balance that's kept the U.S. economy roaring along pretty well for a while. Uh, I genuinely don't know how this is going to play out, right, because a lot depends on the state of mind of the White House and Trump's advisors, and it— it, I don't know if it's just the president, if it's the fact that his advisors are deeply split on the issue, this issue. I don't know what it is. It's also the but, Chinese because yeah. yeah. according to reports, they were the ones who backed away from the deal that they were really close to, to inking. And there was some fight over like literally the language that the deal was going to be written in. And, you know, in this language, it read this way and another, you know, and the Chinese wanted to obviously have it written in the way that was best read in their favor and vice versa. Of course, the Americans do. But 
you know, in this one case, but in most cases, you know, there are it takes two to tango, right? Like there are two parties here. You know, I do think very much that the U.S. side is working very hard to try to get some kind of deal. And I think it's just trying to figure out how the hell to get the Chinese to agree. I'll I'll put I'll be honest. I I applaud Trump, at least in the theory of it was worth pushing back on China because they have been. Yeah, I agree with that. They've been messing with us economically for years. The status quo was unacceptable. And it's good that we're pushing back. This may be the bluntest of all instruments and and arguably not the best way to go to go at it. Um, but I don't think he has really any incentive to change. I mean, it looks like the U.S. and China are close-ish to a deal. The U.S. economy seems to be booming along. I mean, I don't think we should neglect that fact that despite the, these tariffs that everyone was worried was going to lead to massive economic woes, and there are, is a glo- there is a slowdown in the global economy, but – you know, the U.S. economy is still doing quite well, well. Yes, I agree. But I will say there's a reason in part that the economy is still doing well is that our debt burden has gone through the roof. And that's in part because Trump is using U.S. government dollars to give subsidies to farmers who are no, hurt. That, so that's right. There's a reason that, you know, and what the Fed is doing also. But there's a reason that the economy is still going strong. And it's partly because Trump is taking efforts to mitigate the damage that his trade war is doing, which is fine and good, but that's not sustainable, right? So you have to get to a deal. Right. But in Trump's head, he's thinking the economy is doing fine. You know, I still have public support from the people uh, I need to win the next election, and I'm kind of close to a deal. So It also seems like nobody, Democrats or Republicans, care about the debt. So there's also that. Uh, yeah, that doesn't matter. Genuinely, it doesn't matter. And then but. there is bipartisan support that he should push back against China. So I, I, I expect that there will be some something along these lines, some yeah. sort of deal yeah. uh, next year. I think that that's a really important point, right? Like, if there's one thing that we can say about 2019, I think it was the year that Washington turned against Beijing in a lot of different ways, right? Yeah. Not just the trade war, but also the uh, emerging anger and fury surrounding the situation in Xinjiang and the uh, Uyghur detention that I mentioned earlier, which is essentially a campaign of cultural genocide. Uh, And then thirdly, uh, there was the issue about Chinese censorship of U.S. companies with the NBA and Blizzard, the video gaming company. Um, And Hong Kong. And Hong Kong, right, and repression of democracy. It it seems like there's a real sense among Americans now that China isn't just a potential rival or – uh, you know, economic competitor, but like actually a deep threat in a way, like a, a a country that we need to be really, really concerned about and we need to take steps to curtail their influence and start some kind of not like outright military conflict with, but understand that we are in deep and irreconcilable st- strategic competition with China under Xi. And I think that that is, that is in many ways correct, right? And uh, I'll cop to having been more of a China dove in the past, but under Xi, I think that the regime has shown itself to be uh, much more disturbing than previous evidence had suggested. And the problem, though, is that it's not clear what to do about that because I don't think the trade war is like a super good solution. China can't really aggress against us in a lot of different ways, but we need to be more subtle in thinking about what we can do to deal with the parts of expanding Chinese influence that are so concerning. So 2020 sounds like it's going to be fun, you guys. It's going to be lit. Yeah, Wait, that so was right. that was very 2019 of me. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What's to be the new word of 2020? Uh, I don't know. Grumpus. Toast. <laughs> okay. Uh, on, God help on, us all. <laughs> on that horrifyingly old man note. Uh, but you should keep listening to Worldly throughout 2020 because your fearless leaders and dear leaders, uh, Alex, Jed, and Zach, we will be here all through 2020, inshallah. Hopefully, 
to guide you through all of these stories. You guys have really lovely holidays uh, for everybody, and we will see you. Uh, we may put a placeholder episode or, or a repeat next week, but after that, we'll see you back in the new year. Bye. Bye.